Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 159. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for joining us once again together via this medium of the internet, allowing us to come together and to worship together, to study together, to share with one another, um, just to chat with each other and, and uh, ask how everybody's had... You know what? How's everybody's week's been doing? And how everybody's uh, uh, if everyone's staying safe and things like that. Um, we know that people are busy, but we know that we also, as believers, have to stop and take time to study and to um, pray and to press in and to avail ourselves of your truths to fellowship, uh, to reach out to each other. If we don't, then our communities won't stay together. They won't. They won't be cohesive. They won't be strengthened. Um, we as individual believers need one another. Um, it's called the body of Messiah for a reason. So we thank you, Lord, that you are making this um, opportunity available for us here at, this, at these live internet studies. Many of us will be joining via YouTube or iTunes, and I'm thankful to be a part of their lives, even if they can't join me during the live studies week after week. Nevertheless, I interact with quite a few people either via email or through the YouTube comments um, that people post. And so I'm, uh, again, grateful, Lord, to be a part of their, um, their study environment and to grow along with them in uh, studying through the Word. Bless us tonight. Help us to retain the things that are important to you. Help us to grow. Help us to continue to look to you um, and to exemplify your name and to look for opportunities to share our witness with other people. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bishem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. As always, this is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I am a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, Kehilatunova in Thornton, Colorado. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 1 p.m. to um, till whenever we stop. Uh, sometimes it's like 3:30 or or whenever. It depends on what um, you know what Pastor Mark's doing at the time. You can see uh, I've got our website pulled up on my screen right now at graftedin.com. And if you go to the homepage and scroll down just a little bit, you can um, check out over on the right side the thumbnail that looks like. A YouTube channel uh, video and that's exactly what it is we live stream our services each Shabbat so if you aren't able to join us in person there in Thornton Colorado then at least check out our uh, YouTube uh, videos that we upload each week for Mark's sermons there speaking of internet resources while you're at it 
take a chance to go over to take some time to go over to tatetora.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. I'll spell it out for you. www.tetzetorah.com and uh, just avail yourself of all the resources that I park there week after week. Lots of written commentaries and each. Um, of those written commentaries are slowly being turned into video resources as well as iTunes podcasts and things like that. I also have my own YouTube channel. Uh, you can find me on YouTube uh, at uh, www.youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate's Tour Ministries all spelled out there. And um, as you will instantly see, I update I up date daily or upload daily uh, videos so if you click on for instance the little videos tab you can look at the thumbnails and notice um, how busy I am I'm very grateful to be able to make these resources available to you and I'm delighted to update this uh, part of my resource uh, every day um, so every day there's something going on so for that reason if you hit my YouTube channel make sure you do these five things for me subscribe Hit the bell for notifications. Hit the thumbs up if you like the videos. Leave comments. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like, what you have questions on. And then lastly, um, hit the little arrow to share the content with your friends and family members uh, in your social media circles. Okay? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week from my computer to your computer. And um, let me just tell you some of the logistics for tonight's program. This is episode number 159, meeting date October 16th, 2021. That's the USA date. As I mentioned, we meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. approximately. Sometimes we start a little late and sometimes we go a little late, but that's the general starting and ending time. Each hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. Uh, first 30 minutes is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, and we're plugging along in part 75. We're actually almost finished. We're, we're winding down. We're in the last few um, uh, topical sections of the study. So I imagine that we'll easily finish before the end of this year, um, probably even with the next month or two. And then we'll be poised to pick, on a, pick up a new topic, which I haven't really picked yet. Segment two of our 30, long, 30 of our hour-long studies given over to the apologetic um, section known as Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper three, Who or What is the Holy Spirit, part 91 tonight. And of course, we'll watch a short YouTube video, and uh, it is from my uh, short question, short answer live series that I did a few years back. We're just going through the videos uh, over over and again. Uh, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? Last week we actually watched this. Uh, what day is the Sabbath day? Um, should Christians uh, observe the Sabbath? So during that time of when I was recording those, I was kind of in a Sabbath mode. And so I was answering some Sabbath questions. So uh, we'll continue that uh, this week as well. Real brief, again, important details. Uh, if you'd like to join us week after week for the live studies, Skype is the platform that I'm using. I don't use Zoom, and I don't use uh, uh, Teams or uh, uh, some, some of the other platforms that you might be familiar with. Maybe one of these days I will try one of those other platforms. We'll, we'll see. But for the moment, Zoom is the one to go with that I'm going with. Um, if you'd like to join us live each week, Head over to my website, tatesetora.com. At the very top, there's a kind of an orange uh, stripe running along the very top of my website that says Live Internet Studies. Click that, 
it'll bring you to this page scroll halfway down the page and you'll see the blue and white Skype banner and if it's during the time from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time if you click that link then your browser will um, connect you to Skype right there as a guest and then you're good to go so I'd love to have you join us each week the, the uh, Skype after chat session that we uh, engage in with the with the um, people who are in the session right now live with me that doesn't get recorded doesn't get uploaded to iTunes or YouTube and it's exclusive to the live chat session so if you'd like to join and dialogue and chat with one another and with myself after the class is over then this is the, the way to do it one last thing real quick when you do visit my website at Tate's Torah Ministries at tatesaytorah.com Take a moment to scroll down to the very bottom of my website into that uh, black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and look at that little yellow donate button. I would be delighted if you are in a place where you can share your resources with me, particularly your money resources. Um, please don't send me food or anything to the mail or uh, clothing or, or other uh, items that you think I might need. Uh, really, I'm... I'm being kind of humorous, but um, this is the way that you can donate to my ministry and help me during the difficult time that I'm in while I'm still um, trying to find employment out here in South Korea and things like that. Uh, if you can donate, this would be great. I still need the help. Um, uh, you know, there are a few people out there who are uh, helping me uh, here and there, and uh, every little bit counts. So uh, I'm sure appreciative of that. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Without further ado, let's jump right into the uh, Romans study. Uh, Romans 14, Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. I'm just going to go right up to the very top table of contents. And we did an overview of the study uh, last week anyway. Um, I kind of went down through each section and told you what we covered during that time period. Kind of gave you an overview of the whole study. And so having done that... Uh, uh, looking at the table of contents, let's work our way back into where we were going to go anyway, which was um, point number uh, 15 and 16. That's kind of the topic. How can we make for peace and mutual upbuilding? And we already know that in this part of Paul's letter, he is, which is chapter 14 of Romans, he is directly addressing, he's not in exhorting or anything like that per se, he's doing a little bit of damage control. He's trying to help the Jews and Gentiles as believers there work out their personal differences with one another, differences that would arise naturally between a community of Jews and Gentiles who are suddenly thrust together under the banner of Messiah. Of course, we know from first century historical studies that the Gentiles largely outnumbered the Jewish communities, or at least the Jewish presence in the church communities. Part of this may have been due to the expulsion of the Jewish people earlier that, um, maybe that decade um, before Paul was writing. Either way, we are dealing with a, a church community where Jews and Gentiles are still uh, meeting with one another. Some of them, most of them are believers. Um, it's understandable that Paul would write to believers and call them brothers. But at the same time, it's natural from, from a a logical perspective that any church group is going to have some non-believers in the groups as well. Well, in Paul's day, that dynamic of non-believing Jews and Gentiles who were still kind of attached to church communities would have been a rather uh, peculiar and specified, um, unique um, dynamic because unbelieving Jews in the presence of uh, church communities was something that Paul was anticipating. Whereas today, we don't really think in church circles that we've got 
uh, maybe religious Jews in the audience when the pastor's speaking, he might think there might be some unbelieving Jewish people who aren't maybe practicing any form of Judaism. So they're probably just more like um, secular Jews. But practically speaking, in Paul's day, we still had a large Jewish faith community that was um, expected to maybe interact with the Gentile Christian community. So the peace and mutual building that Paul is talking about in this part of his letter, in, in verse 19, is driven in part by the differences between the social uh, expectations between the existing Jewish community uh, of Paul's day and the emerging Christian communities that were um, uh, expressing their faith in God and their connection to Israel and their appreciation for the scriptures and their reliance upon the Holy Spirit, their belief in Jesus, and all of those things. You put all of that together, of course, we're not talking about peace and mutual building between pagans and Christians. We're not talking about peace and mutual building between your average Greco-Roman citizen and Christianity or anything like that. The peace and mutual building is Paul describing his desire to see Jews and Gentiles and Messiah work together for the, the, the eschatological picture that Paul had in mind. To get that picture, You've got to go backwards in Romans to chapters 9 through 11 and read that very carefully and watch how Paul describes the family of Abraham in terms of a picture known as the olive tree where he describes wild olives being the people from the nations being grafted into Abraham's family uh, through their faith in Messiah and being placed onto the family tree of Abraham and becoming part and parcel with the Abrahamic the existing Abrahamic family, meaning the existing Jewish people. This means that there would have been Jews and Gentiles mostly who believe in Jesus, but there still would have been some interaction with non-believing or traditional Jews. The black, the backsliding part of Israel, the wayward, uh, stumbling part of Israel. I say backsliding, uh, uh, stumbling, things like that. So um, Jewish people kept kosher to the best of their ability. Jewish people avoided idolatry by uh, eating and purchasing food uh, at different locations than Gentiles did. Um, Jewish people met on different special holy days and different fast days and things like that. This would have made for some uh, strained um, social dynamics when it came to interacting with Gentiles, particularly even Messianic Jews as far as we can tell from historical records, they had not completely abandoned their preferences for keeping the Torah in Paul's day. Not like we have today, where you have most Gentiles and, and many Messianic Jews who maybe even feel that it's just uh, socially acceptable and, and hunky-dory to just uh, worship like a, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, for those who can't see, Gentile Christian. So um, in Paul's day, there was still a, a, a good amount of influence in the church communities that would have looked Jewish. And so um, uh, the peace and mutual building needs to uh, be worked out between people who have their differences. What I drew up were some conclusions in this part of the study, so let me just read this, these two paragraphs. That's um, uh, it's not that long, so um, just bear with me. I say in my commentary, and so while it was natural that Paul would expect both spirit-filled Jews and Gentiles to continue to have their socio-religious differences and challenges, right? We're talking about people who are raised in environments where they're taught to respect um, a way of life 
If you're Gentile, then you're probably raised in a pagan environment, but coming into Christianity, you're going to be expected to give up that paganism. Is it going to cause some friction with your old friends and family members? Yeah, it might, but Paul's not expecting you to stay connected to that pagan lifestyle. You're definitely going to have to make a choice to leave that paganism behind. However, however, listen very carefully. If you were Jewish, raised in a Jewish home, and taught to respect the Torah and the traditions of the elders and, and your family heritage and things like that as a Jew, as an Israelite, then when you came to a belief in Jesus, there is nothing in the Torah that I can understand, that I can interpret from Paul's writings, that expected you to leave that Jewish lifestyle behind. Yes, you had to make a choice between the halakha of the believing communities and the halakha of the national Israelites. In other words, if the rabbis were telling you to abandon your um, uh, inter your, your interaction with Gentile people, uh, but Paul was telling you to stay connected to the Gentile people, then you had to choose what Paul was teaching, not what the rabbis were teaching. So there are some challenges for, gen for Messianic Jews joining um, Christian communities in Paul's day, but for the most part, Paul expected the Jewish people to continue on their path of Torah observance, not to abandon their Torah observance as Messianic Jews. So we have their socio-religious differences between Jews and Gentiles, particularly, I say, in regards to food and table fellowship. Those, that's where you're going to find a lot of friction, because that's, that's something that happens every day. You've got to eat to live, and um, church, uh, churches need their um, fellowship. If you don't have fellowship with one another, then um, how are you going to grow? How are you going to get to know one another? How are you going to form relationships? And so food and table fellowship was something that was natural. And so you can guess that when you have Jews coming together with Gentiles and you have differences of opinion over where food can be purchased, where you can do your shopping, what food you can eat, what's considered clean, what's considered unclean, what's considered common, well, then you're going to have what I keep calling a food fight breaking out. I say in my commentary, nevertheless, because both Jew and Gentile have been brought together in the salvific plans of the kingdom of God, so we're talking about a community made up of Jews and Gentiles who've been brought under the same um, localized uh, um common denominator, which is, of course, Jesus the Messiah, the body of Messiah, the fellowship of the Spirit, belief in God, well, then you're naturally going to um, have uh, some challenges, but at the same time, you're going to have the power and the community of the Spirit to help you work through those issues. Paul is um, banking on the truth that Jew and Gentile have this shared identity as the body of Messiah, filled with the Spirit of God, walking in the ways of God, and confessing Jesus as the Christ. And Paul knows that this identifier, which he's going to call in his other letter, one new man in Ephesians, he knows that this is the strongest bond that Jew and Gentile can have with one another, is recognizing that at the, at the foot of the cross, all things are equal between all men. There is no social um, pecking order any longer. Uh, Jews can't look down their nose at Gentiles and vice versa. No judgmental attitudes are allowed in the body of Messiah. This is because all of us were broken before we found Christ. We all come to him as sinners. And, and in that same setting, we equally receive of the, the spirit that God freely pours out. We equally receive 
of the anointing and the blessings, and we're in a place where we can fellowship with one another because we now realize that um, uh, Jew and Gentile isn't the primary social identifying marker. Male and female is not the, even the primary fi- uh, social identifying marker. Uh, likewise, slave and free. So Paul expresses himself in the in terms of there's neither male nor female, slave nor you know Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. He's not saying that those distinctions are erased. He's trying to get the people to understand that there's a bigger um, a spiritual identity, uh, you know, body of Messiah, children of God, children of Abraham, sons of God, daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, a commonwealth of Israel, uh, one new man, um, you know, spiritual Israel. Fill in the blank with whatever uh, 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 label that uh, you're, you know that I'm referring to here. And uh, I say in my commentary this way, Paul expected each person to live by the power of the Ruach Kodesh, that is the Holy Spirit, in order that the, quote, deeds of the flesh, end quote, might be, quote, put to death, end quote. And the deeds of the flesh are that which is described earlier in this letter. Of course, they're they're um, delineated elsewhere in Paul's letters and in, in uh, other um, writings that the Romans may or may or not have access to. We have them now available in our Bibles because we can read about them like in the book of Galatians and Philippians and, and other places where Paul outlines um, you know, the works of the flesh and, and, and the, the, the nature of the old man. We can read about that in the first chapter of Ephesians and things like that. The lifestyle that we used to live when we were unbelievers and the way we used to conduct ourselves with one another and the way we were always out for revenge and out for 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 you know we were jealous of one another and we we sought to to outdo one another and and um you know pay each other back when we were wronged and and we uh you know step on the other guy so you can uh pull yourself up by your own uh, bootstraps and you know uh, climb that corporate ladder by by you know kicking everyone below you and that whole mindset Paul calls all of that the deeds of the flesh. That's the old man that Paul's saying, you've got to put that guy off. You've got to walk by the Spirit. You can't do it under your own power. You cannot suppress the old man by using the flesh itself. It's going to fail every time. You're going to have some measured, momentary, temporary um, uh, relief and uh, uh, success. But in the end, overall, uh, the the old man cannot be um, suppressed under your own power. That's why we need the Spirit of God. That's why God changes from the inside out and fills us with his Holy Spirit so that we can uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and I say in my comment that they might, quote, walk in newness of life, end quote. So this is the solution to the judgmental uh, attitudes that's plaguing the, 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 the um, uh, Roman communities that Paul is suspicious of. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit that's revealing this to him, because Paul isn't even in Rome and writing the letter at the time, right? He's writing from Corinth, I believe, uh, before he even travels to Rome. But we see the um, the uh, uh, the aspect of of uh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, walking together as Jews and Gentiles. We saw that in the letter to Ephesians. We actually um, read through Ephesians chapter two and, and selected out some verses where Paul's highlighting, at least to the Ephesian communities, how that they are one in Messiah, Jew and Gentile, and it's not going to be any different to the communities at Rome. To be sure, Paul already outlined some of those truths in Romans chapter 
4. So you have to go all the way back there and look how he describes um, the Abrahamic family and how it's faith in Messiah that brings you in, not your conversion to Judaism, and not even being born Jewish. That's your primary identifying marker. Yes, it's uh, important to have Jewish identity. Yes, it's important to have Gentile identity. We need the complementary um, pairs in the body to showcase and highlight the truths of the gospel and indeed to um, um, agree with God that the that uh, God can and will bless both Jew and Gentile. Remind yourself, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that God made a promise to Papa Abraham that he would bless those that bless him, curse those that curse him, and I'm paraphrasing, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed, or all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The idea is that obviously God was going to bring up the Messiah in the family of Abraham. From the natural lineage of Abraham, the Messiah would come into the world. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, what God was promising to Abraham is that I'm going to bring about a an increase of your offspring, not just on the natural level at you know children of Abraham, Jews, Jewish people, but I'm going to bring about the inclusion of those from the nations into your family, adopted into your family via faith in my coming son. I'm speaking as if I'm uh, God talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, filling in all the missing pieces that we already know from the New Testament. I'm going to bring Gentiles into your family and swell your family number so large that there's going to be a time, a good, a good amount of time, like 2,000 years now, when the Gentiles are actually even going to outnumber the physical sons of Abraham known as Jewish people. And yet, because of their belief in my son Yeshua, they are counted as offspring of Abraham. They are sons of Abraham, which means they are sons of God by faith. Read Romans chapter 4 very carefully. You can couple that with, Genesis, with uh, Galatians chapter 3 and see how those two fit together. So in my commentary, um, what we're going to do in this final uh, conclusionary section to the idea of how can we work together as Jews and Gentiles, and there'll be a shorter Roman segment tonight. Um, let's pull a quote from Barnes' uh, commentary. Barnes' comments on Romans 14.9 are timeless and appropriate for my commentary. And so I say I'm going to quote him at length to close out this section of my quotes. Now, of course, we're um, talking about Romans 14. So let me just read the verse real quick, and then I'll come back down uh, to that section. Um, uh, Romans 14. Let me Bear with me. I'm just going to scroll all the way back up and so we can see. Romans 14.9, as you can see on my screen, I've got ESV on the left side of the screen. I've got the SBLGNT Greek on the right side of the screen. Let's see both, read both of those. ESV says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual building. So this is why I uh, entitled this particular section, what makes for peace and mutual building. How can we do that? Paul is expecting, as I said, the two groups to continue to rely on the Spirit of God to um, bring them together even if there's a smaller Jewish community uh, segment, at the time that Paul's writing, he's got this bigger goal in mind. He wants to see um, uh, unbelieving, stumbling Israel brought back into a place of belief in their Messiah, uh, not rejection of Messiah. He wants to see them restored 
into a place of, of prominence and blessing, not just among each other, but among all the other people groups of the earth. Paul read through his Tanakh, his Old Testament, and he saw through the prophets that God was going to restore Israel. He was going to bring her to a place, of course, prophetically, um, Israel was going through a rough time with her um, uh, exiles and you know her um, being um, scattered to other people groups and um, you know being uh, uh, just subjugated to uh, uh, slavery because of uh, uh, you know enemies foreign and abroad and things like that. But spiritually speaking, um, there were promises that God would bring Israel to a place of preeminence and um, bless Jerusalem and eventually even make his abode, bringing heaven down to earth, literally. Uh, uh, and Paul read through those promises, and he was just so excited that this was going to happen. He didn't know perhaps exactly when, but what he did know, what he did understand, was that a chief key element of the restoration of Israel was the bringing in of the nations into Israel as partners with Israel in belief in God and fellowship with the people of Israel in celebrating the goodness and mercy and the promises that are spelled out in God's word, um, keeping Torah right alongside the Jewish people, things like that. The inclusion of the Gentiles was the kind of what, Paul, what we might call the missing ingredient that Israel was blinded to. She didn't see that part. But by the Spirit, Paul saw that. And so Paul describes what I'm describing now, the Gentile inclusion in Israel. He calls that the mystery of the gospel. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 3. That's your homework assignment this week. So that's why I keep highlighting this aspect in here in Romans. Paul didn't suddenly um forget about the mystery of the gospel when he's writing romans even though he didn't talk that way uh we can see elements of it uh laced throughout the letter if you look for it and so that's why i'm leaning on that particular aspect uh the greek over on the right side of the screen says ara un tates erenes diokomen kai uh tates oikadames tates ace alelus all right let's go down uh to that uh uh conclusion section and read that part one more uh, read read the uh, quote from Barnes. All right, so here's what I have to say in my commentary. So we're in the conclusionary section of my notes. Barnes says, quote, The things which make for peace, the high purposes and objects of the Christian religion, and not those smaller matters which produce strife. Now, keep in mind, Barnes is not writing from the let's talk about how the Jews and Gentiles are brought together in Messiah perspective. Barnes is going to write from your traditional Christian perspective where we as communities need to focus on reliance on the Spirit, um, not judging one another, deferring to one another, um, looking out for your fellow man, your fellow Christian, and things like that. So it's going to be a very kind of um, overly Gentile, Christian-y sounding um, uh, comment. Um, but nevertheless, it is relevant uh, for our study, and I'm not trying to mock uh, the, uh, his comment by bringing it into my study here. I believe it is necessary, even if you never interact with a Jewish person as a Christian, as a Gentile, even if you ever had a chance to, say, maybe in your own local congregation, you don't even recognize or are aware of any Jewish presence or community or anything like that. You never get a chance to go visit the synagogue or you don't have any desire to. Your pastor doesn't have any uh, Jewish outreach program or a church or anything like that, doesn't talk about Israel or anything like that. Nevertheless, the things which make for peace that um, Barnes is going to talk about are still relevant to our communities because if we aren't strengthened from within, 
then we will never have the opportunity for outreach from without. We cannot expect to be a powerful witness to our neighborhoods and our communities around the church if we have all of this infighting going on because of food preferences or, or food differences or worship days or or we fight over the color of the carpet, you know, some other nonsensical thing like that. So have that in mind as you're listening to what Barnes has to say. He goes on to say, if men aim at the great objects proposed by the Christian religion, they will live in peace. And I have to agree with the general aspect of what he's trying to teach here. Again, he's not going to talk about Jew and Gentile brought together like I've been talking about how I believe that is more relevant in Paul's day. It's 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 lost its its edge to, in today's Christian communities because we don't have the the connection between unbelieving uh, Jewish communities and Christian communities as strong in in even in America unless you're you just happen to have a church that's across the street from a synagogue or down the street from a synagogue or a church that happens to be near a Jewish community and neighborhood or something like that but otherwise generally speaking your average evangelical Protestant Christian church in America that I'm aware of growing up as a Christian and traveling a little bit in America uh, wasn't really even aware of Judaism and didn't have really any special interest in reaching out to unbelieving Jews or trying to make um, peace and mutual building between the Jewish communities or anything like that. But in Paul's day, it was radically different. There were existing Jewish communities, and Paul himself being, although he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he still is connected to to as much to whatever degree he can to his Jewish communities, uh, particularly when he traveled to Jerusalem. So let's keep reading. This is Barnes in my own commentaries, in my own commentary here. Barnes says, if they, speaking of Christians, if they seek to promote their private ends to follow their own passions and prejudices, then what's going to happen is they will be involved in strife and contention. And again, this is just good common sense advice coming from a type of pastoral uh, leader such as Barnes speaking to the congregation, speaking to the the Christians uh, in any given uh, um, Christian community. Barnes con- uh, continues, there are great common objects before all Christians in which they can unite and Barnes goes on to say, in the pursuit of which they will cultivate a spirit of peace. Again, um, to kind of condense what what I believe Barnes is getting at, we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. We need to focus on what's important in our communities as church uh, leaders and and, and participants and churchgoers um, and make sure we're not allowing um, something to undermine the community. Uh, Barnes continues, let them all strive for holiness. I had to just pause and stop and say amen to that, right? That's that's advice that Paul would certainly be behind. Let's all strive for holiness, right? If we've got our eyes on Jesus and not on one another, if we're focusing on the master and what he's done for us and how he has rescued us from darkness and how he's brought us into fellowship with himself and cleansed us of our of our sin and forgiven us and uh, made us uh, new and strengthened us uh, as believers, if we're focusing on the goodness of God instead of, trying to nitpick each other's um uh you know little petty differences well hey he looked at me sideways and and i don't like the way he uh 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 looked at me and and his snide remarks uh 
really really upset me and and um you know he insulted me last week and he didn't apologize and and it hurt my feelings and or he didn't sit next to me in the church pew this week like he did last week um you know i th- i think he's he's playing favorites he's like that other new family better than me or you know you know if if we're if we're focusing all of on all of that then i can tell you what we're not pursuing holiness we're just pursuing pettiness we're pursuing the flesh we're pursuing the old man and uh, again, Paul's going to um, caution against all of that. So how does Barnes put it? He says, in this idea of pursuing for holiness, pursuing holiness, let them seek to spread the gospel. Yeah, that's a good one. If if you need help um, uh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, suppressing the old man, the old nature, try this exercise. Get out your Bible, turn to all those passages that speak about the goodness of the gospel and bringing people into the kingdom and your witness, and focus on that and do studies on that and meditate on those verses and pray about how God can give you a heart for the lost. And you know what it's going to do? It will absolutely take your mind off of your own hollow, shallow, um, uh, uh, importance, uh, you know, your own puffed up pride, your own, um, false, uh, identity where you think you've got to, you're the, you know, the latest and the greatest, um, and that people need to respect you more than anyone else in the church. And why isn't anyone giving you the, the respect that you deserve? And if you're, if your eyes are focused on yourself and not on Jesus and on the Lord and the, and you're not going to see the lost, you're not going to have a heart for people around you who are, who are lost and dying and on their way to hell because you're so focused on your own, um, needs, your own wants, your own desires, your own flesh, you're feeding your own flesh, or you're looking at everyone else and you're jealous of everything that they've got that you don't have. Seek for holiness. Spread the gospel. Seek for those who are lost. Get your eyes off of yourself and get your eyes on the Lord and allow His Spirit to show you the brokenness of people around you. Humble you. Bring you to a place where you can be used. You've got to make your vessel usable and you're not going to do it if you're focusing on on all the petty differences uh, of everyone else in the congregation. Let's continue. Uh, Barnes says, let them engage in circulating the Bible, right? Uh, There are so many people out there who don't have the Word of God. So many countries out there that need Bibles. I'm not saying all of us are so rich that we can just um, go to the Bible suppliers, you know, buy 100 or 500 Bibles and say, okay, send these to this third world country. They need it. No, we're not all in that place. But you know what? Maybe, maybe, just maybe at your workplace or at your uh, educational place or maybe in your family when you're having your family get-togethers, maybe you can strike up a conversation with someone and begin to share the gospel with them and get to a place where you ask them, hey, have you read in the Bible where it says, Mm-mm-mm. and they say, you know, I don't have a Bible. That's a great opportunity to offer to buy one or give up your own Bible if you got a spare one. Most Christians have a spare Bible. I look around this office that I'm in right now, and I can't count the number of Bibles I have. Now, of course, they're in different languages here and there. I've got a you know Hebrew version over here. I've got a Greek version over there. I've got a Korean version over there on the shelf. But I, I, I must have at least half a dozen English version Bibles. If I need to give away a Bible to someone who needs one, I, I'm in a place where I can do that. That's why Barnes says engage in circulating the Bible, or he says in doing good in any way to others. Of course, I think Barnes would also agree that the good, the others that he has in focus is firstly your Christian communities, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and second, even to those outside of the church. Um, he said, do good to others, and their smaller matters of differences will do what? They're going to sink 
into comparative unimportance. You're not going to be focusing on all the ways that they didn't address you correctly when they greeted you in the church. You're not going to uh, focus on the fact that they didn't show up at the potluck and sit next to you and have a strike of a conversation with you or, or they made that dish that offended you because it had some ingredient in it that you already told them beforehand that you didn't eat and they made that dish the way that they wanted to anyway or, or you know whatever. Um, we're talking about table fellowship and things like that. Um, Barnes goes on to say, um, and speaking of believers, they will unite in one grand purpose of saving the world. Again, cycling back around to this idea of evangelism. And that is a high priority in uh, the Word of God, in the, the, the scriptures that we carry. Um, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is in a place where he's trying to bring Gentiles into the family of God. He's trying to bring Jewish people in, back into a relationship with God through their own Messiah, Yeshua, the very Messiah that they have rejected, the very Messiah that they don't understand. Uh, Barnes uh, says this in conclusion. Christians have more things in which they agree than in which they differ. Of course, that's just common sense. And if we would stop and highlight the things that we agree on, then we're going to have a stronger community, more cohesion. We're going to have a, 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 a more vibrant fellowship with one another. The points, Barnes goes on to say, in which they are agreed are of infinite importance. And in comparison, the points on which they differ are commonly some minor matters in which they may agree to differ. And so, yes, sometimes you do have to agree to disagree, but hopefully it's not on the major points, right? Like the gospel, sharing the, the good news and things like that. Um, so, yes, there are some matters in which they may, quote, agree to differ, and yet still cherish love for all who bear the image of Christ. And so that's going to um, bring this part of my study to a close. Um, next week, as you can see on my screen right now, we're ready to turn to verses 14, uh, chapter 14, verses 20 and 21, where I ask the question, what does everything is indeed clean mean? And you're thinking, what? You're going to start talking about clean and unclean food all over? Didn't you already talk about that already? Um, yeah, I did, but don't blame me. Blame Paul, because if you look at the next set of verses, Paul talks about food all over again. And he says everything is indeed clean, right? That's what he says in verse 20. And in verse 21, it's not it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother's son. So it's Paul's fault that we're going to go back and start looking at food issues again. Start talking about kosher all over again, even though we already hit it in some earlier passages here in our study. So I'm just going where Paul's going. So if you've if you got some problem with that, then blame him. All right, and that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh, my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And let's just jump into the table of contents and jump right in using the navigational feature that I uh, put into the uh, the online version. We're in Exploring the Shema, paper three of three, who or what is the Holy Spirit. And we're basically um, still in the middle of who or what is the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God versus Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit. So let me click on that and scroll down into the study. We've already worked our way down through most of this section. We're really um, finalizing this. There's one last paragraph that I didn't read. Uh, I'm going to read that, and then I'll just jump right into, really, we're ready for the next uh, uh, segment, segment three. And so we're talking about this idea of comparing the passages in the Bible that talk about the Spirit of God, 
and then we read passages about the Spirit of Christ, or Christ dwelling in us via the Spirit, right? We already know that Jesus takes up residency within us as believers. But every believer knows that's not the physical man Jesus that comes to live inside me, right? That's not physically possible. What instead happens is that he comes to dwell inside of my heart via the power of the Spirit. Well, the question is, is it, is it right to say that Jesus dwells in me? Or is it right to say that God dwells in me? Or is, am I, is it better to describe it as the Holy Spirit that dwells in me? Well, we're going to find that there's language in the Bible that um, allows for all three of those scenarios to be accurate and yet not be so confused as to think that there are three separate spirits going on. So um, that's kind of what's going on. And the next section, segment three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, who or what spirit is in dwelling believers, goes right into that. So you can see that these two segments work together. So let's pick up my commentary right here um, and read this last uh, paragraph from the segment two, and we'll probably jump into segment three tonight. I say my commentary. Recall that God the Father is pure spirit. And what I mean by highlighting that fact that everyone already knows is that even though God can um, uh, theophanate himself, I'm, I'm making up a word that I don't think exists, but uh, it, it fits my purpose. He can, he can show up as theophanies, right? That's what I mean by theophanate. He can manifest himself in certain forms, in certain ways. He shows up in the Old Testament as a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, a burning bush, um, the angel of the Lord, as a man himself in Genesis 18, showing up to Abraham. Um, uh, so, he, you know, a voice from heaven, thunder and lightning, and, and all manner of, of ways that we know that it's God, but at the same time, our senses are registering something. The very glory of God is seen and felt and, and experienced by one of our five senses. At, yet at the same time, God the Father is pure spirit, meaning he's non-corporeal. As far as I can tell, he doesn't have a physical body. Um, he's not described as a being who possesses a body that can be um, sensed with one of our five senses. It's God's choosing to break into the natural every now and then when he chooses to um, participate in a theophany with us. But on the whole, God is a spirit. And this is part of the reason why he's invisible, why he can't be seen. Part of it's because of his sheer, the sheer weight of his holiness when compared to humanity. Um, if we were to see him in his, in his holiness, then we would, we would be destroyed. Um, we just can't, uh, we can't, we can't handle that amount of holiness uh, in, in the state that we're in right now. So God is pure spirit. He is a spirit and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, the New Testament teaches us. I go on to say, and this predetermines that this spirit, whether you identify it as the Father's very own, or whether you identify him as a separate person of the Holy Spirit, separate and distinct from the person of the Father. So, yes, there are different ways to talk about the Holy Spirit. I hear uh, believers who talk about the Spirit in terms of it. I hear believers talk about the Holy Spirit in terms of he. I prefer he, and I think that there's uh, ample enough evidence in the Holy in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit in terms of he, given personhood, given personality. He is, uh, he has personality, and I think that's the best way um to describe him. However, sometimes we're focusing on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're focusing on functions of the Holy Spirit uh, and the actions, and so sometimes we'll use it. Uh, so I'm not terribly put off by that, um, but um, at the end of the day, I really prefer to, hear, to refer to the Holy Spirit as a he. Either way, 
uh, we're, we're, we're talking about the fact that um, the spirit, let me just read my commentary, we are discussing here, the spirit that we're discussing here is most definitely an invisible, non-corporeal entity. So um, generally speaking, when we picture the Holy Spirit that we read about in the Bible, whether we're talking about the Spirit of God, which is equal with God, who is very God, right, God's very own Spirit, or we're talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is separate and distinct from the God who is a Spirit. So, Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Holy, or the Holy Spirit versus uh, God the Father who is a Spirit, versus the Spirit of Messiah who comes to dwell in each of us as believers. Either way, we're, all, we're still... Um, talking about the invisible non-corporeal entity known as the spirit meaning um aside from those few times in the bible where we read about um theophanies of the spirit i like to call it uh where we have a manifestation in the form of either um uh, you know mighty rushing wind or uh, uh cloves of 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 tongues of tongue tongues of cloven fire that came to rest on the believers in acts chapter 2 or, you know, that's the Holy Spirit, but if it's, a, it's a kind of a theophany of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we also, of course, have the account where um, God the Father uh, uh, allows the Holy Spirit to descend on Yeshua in the form of a dove. Whether it took the shape of a dove or not, I, I tend to think that it did. Um, as I read the, the, the passage in its most normal, normative uh, interpretation, is that the, the Spirit, in, uh, he didn't incarnate like Yeshua incarnated from from being uh, fully God to truly God to being truly man. Not like that. Just in that brief moment, we had a theophany where the spirit took the shape of a dove and those who were watching the, um, the, uh, the baptism probably saw it as well. To be sure, John, who's writing that, uh, 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 you know, wrote wrote it later on. He's doing the baptism, and then he goes back and writes it. Or John the Baptist is doing the baptism, and John the Apostle uh, is writing it. Um, either way, we're talking about the description as a dove. So that would be a, a temporary theophany of the Holy Spirit. But generally speaking, other than those other those brief instances in the Bible, we just like God the Father is a spirit and he's invisible. The Holy Spirit is also a spirit. He's invisible. Visible, right, and you're thinking, why? Why am I even bringing all that up, right? The reason I bring that up, and let me read my commentary and read this little part, and then you'll see why I'm bringing this up. And yet, I say in my commentary, Yeshua was and most definitely is flesh and blood human. He is, he was, and is most definitely a flesh and blood human that was seen by ordinary men when he walked on the earth. Now, again, this is all trivial. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's a spirit. Yeah, God's a spirit. Yeah, Jesus is a man. Why am I bringing all this up? It's because skeptics and doubters and people who don't hold to a Trinitarian model like to imagine that God is this being that's either A, simply manifesting himself in different ways, and yet it's still only one being. So Unitarian perspective that teaches there's one God, he's not tripersonal, he cannot be broken up into personhood, and therefore Jesus is a separate man, and the Holy Spirit is, is simply the Spirit of God himself. And thus, from their perspective, the Spirit that dwells in believers is just God's Spirit. It's not necessarily a Messiah's Spirit or, um, or a separate person known as the Holy Spirit. So that's why I bring up these um, uh, facts. Likewise, uh, quasi-Christian groups or 
um, divergent Christian groups who do, who break away from Trinitarian models. Uh, you know the the ones I keep naming, like the besides the Unitarians, you know the Christadelphians, the the um, Iglesia Cristo, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the um, Mormon groups, uh, the Oneness Pentecostal groups, and things like that. Um, uh, church, I think like. Church of God or Worldwide Church of God or one of those other groups, I can't remember. But what they like to believe is there are models of God that kind of fall into the category of um, modalism. Uh, one is Pentecostals, for instance. The, the, the believe that essentially there's one being that we can call God the Father at times, but at other times we can call God the Son, and other times we call him God the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, some one of Pentecostals believe that the name of this God is Jesus. And therefore, um, it is uh, Jesus, who is the singular named being who sometimes shows up as God the Father, but other times shows up as God the Holy Spirit, but it's really just one God. So it's one God swapping out different um, disguises or masks. That's what modalism is. And uh, we Orthodox with a small O Trinitarians reject that view of God, and part and parcel with that is our recognition that God the Father is a spirit. God the Holy Spirit is a spirit, and yet God the Son, middle, you know, the the second person in the Trinity, he's fully God yet fully man. He's truly God and truly man. He's he's he is God. He's full deity, but he's a man, and so he can send his spirit as God to dwell within believers. And yet at the same time, he has a flesh and blood uh, body that's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So I'm bringing up those details. Um. In my commentary, I just make this final note. The last time I checked, humans cannot be in multiple locations at the same time, nor can the limited spirit of a human being transcend its own fleshly body without suffering the loss of life to the original physical host, right? The one who, uh, where it started. So, um, you know, I bring up this kind of nonsensical uh, uh, description of human limitation to show that people who describe Jesus as merely a man and strip him of his deity must equally recognize then that he cannot dwell in each and every believer if he is only human. So I know some, again, some believers or Bible readers, students, who say, well, Jesus isn't God, he's only a man. He's glorified, he's deified, he's got a lot of special powers. Heck, maybe he's even an eternal, right? He, he's, a, he's a mutant, he's, a, he's an X-Man, he's, he's an Avenger, he's a superhero. He's some metahuman, right? Uh, whatever description they give to Jesus as this great uh, Messiah figure that God exalted, but nevertheless didn't give him full deity, whatever, you know, the, he's, he's, he's a God, but he's less than God, right? He's a demigod, he's a, he's a mini-God, he's a mini-me, um, he's a lesser Yahweh or some other nonsense like that. The other descriptions of Jesus um, being exalted to the right hand of God, but not, uh, can't, he can't uh, share the same description as full deity or full God. This description of Jesus has to somehow take into the account that Jesus himself promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us, that he would come to dwell with us, that he would make his abode with us. You know, we read in the book of Revelations, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, uh, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. If this is true for every believer, and I'm paraphrasing that passage in, in Revelation, by the way, how is it possible that Jesus can do that if he's still just a man, if he's merely a man, if he's only a man, if he's only human? How can he transcend his own physical body? No, I submit to you that those are descriptions of a man who's more than a man, 
a, a man who is full deity, a man who enjoys the same uh, abilities uh, to dwell in the hearts of all true believers the way God can do so, because God enjoys that uh, type of um, quality as God. All right, so with that, we can now turn to part three in this uh, Trinity study, and we're not going to finish all of this. We're just going to continue. This is a continuation from number two. Um, you know, Spirit of God versus uh, Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit, where we introduce this idea that in the Old Testament, primarily, probably one of the more natural ways to read through your Bible is to understand uh, the references to Spirit in the Old Testament as God himself, just another way of saying God. You know, uh, when Moses writes in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 that God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, it is natural to understand that we're talking about one being that we're talking about one power, that we're not suddenly being introduced to the first and third person of the Trinity. That would, I believe, be a reading back into the text that probably wasn't present, or even uh, many of the people who read the text at the time, you know, 3,500 years ago or so when it was given, they probably didn't have that perspective that, wow, suddenly there's a, a second or a third person here that's being introduced when we read the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. They did, probably didn't read the text that way. And so it's natural to read those passages that way. I, I'm, I'm with that. But, but what we have is a progressive nature to the Bible. And we have God revealing himself in stages and in, and in, in progressively where he's showing us a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more till we come to the fullness of this expression and um, understanding of God and who he is in the person of the man named Yeshua from Nazareth who brought very God to us in incarnation. God himself took on human flesh. That's the incarnation, the hypostatic union between uh, truly God and truly man, this is when we see this um, taking place in the first century in, in the person of Yeshua. So it's in that context that we can expect that the Holy Spirit is going to be revealed more and more fully to us as he poured himself out to believers at Acts chapter 2 and onwards. This manifestation of God in the person of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy fellowship with now through our belief in Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Notice now we have this full Trinitarian picture or perspective of this complex God that we serve. We started out with a simplistic picture way back in the Old Testament and worked our way towards the more complex picture that we read about in the Apostolic Scriptures, aka the New Testament. And the point I'm trying to challenge us as believers with is that as we're studying through the Bible, it's disingenuous as Bible students to simply ignore the revelations that have been given to us in the later parts of the Bible, as if all that God wants us to remember and realize and highlight are the parts in the Tanakh. That would be wrong. If we only focus on what God gave us in the Old Testament, we are going to miss the complex nature of this God. And we're going to end up denying that Yeshua is God and that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. That's the natural course of logical thought process if you only focus on what, who and what God uh, revealed himself as in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. That's the picture you're going to walk away with. So I submit to you that the better way to understand the nature of God is to take into account all of the Bible as a whole. Look, at, look and put all of the passages on the table. And I believe it's undeniable 
that our God is one, yet three, yet one. And so with that as the intro, we're talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit. Who or what spirit is indwelling believers, right? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Is it the Holy Spirit himself? Do we, do we, should we be thinking that there's three spirits? And I'm even going to go humorously going to say, no, there should actually be four because Ariel's spirit still lives in there too. All right, so let's let's jump into this um, uh, humorous uh, uh, reading here. Humorous to me, but it, it's actually quite serious. Philosophically speaking, I say, as a matter of deductive reasoning, in other words, let's use our brains here, people, in order for the spirit of the risen Messiah to come to dwell inside of all believers across both space and time, such a spirit would have to be capable, I say, of possessing an eternal, dynamic, and living quality the likes of which only God the Father, right, following along with me, only God the Father is known to possess, namely, eternal timelessness and boundlessness. So my first challenge to the critics and skeptics and people who say that Jesus can't be God is, okay, you say Jesus isn't God, you say he's only a human, then how can he live inside of me as a human? Where's where's that taking place? They say, well, it's by the Spirit. Whose Spirit? God's Spirit? Jesus' Spirit? How can Jesus' Spirit come to live inside of me if he's only a man? I mean, I'm a man, and my Spirit can't live inside of anyone else except me, right? Only got, only got one address his whole life, and that's the, the guy known as Ari. So no other place for him to live. The Spirit of Ariel lives inside of the body of Ariel, and he can't go live anywhere else. But Jesus, the Messiah, he promised me that he would come to take up residency with me, he would be with me, and he would go with me and stay with me, right? How is that possible unless Jesus is more than human? If he's more, he's got to be more than human. And I say in my commentary, moreover, such a Messiah, the one that I subscribe to, the one that I believe the Bible teaches us, the one who is very God and yet very man, this Messiah as, quote, the word who was with God and was God, end quote, the word made flesh, that Messiah, yeah, not the one of the Unitarians, not the Messiah of the Christadelphians, not the Christ of the um, uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Jesus of the Iglesia de Christos or the, um, uh, the Oneness Pentecostals, not that Jesus. The Jesus that I read about in the Bible, he had to have had this eternal quality prior to even being born in Bethlehem. You understand what I'm saying here? Christ, the Messiah, has to have had the ability not only to save an individual prior to going to the cross, but the power to indwell multiple people at the same time. For instance, I believe that Moses was saved. I read places in the Bible where he he chose to um, uh, enjoy the suffering of Messiah rather than the pleasure of sin for a season. I think that's in the book of Hebrews. And so he looked forward to the Messiah. He knew of the coming Messiah that he wrote about because God's Spirit revealed this coming Messiah to him. And thus he placed his faith in that Messiah and took on the relationship that I have with Messiah, albeit perhaps in less detail, but nevertheless it was the same salvific relationship. Thus Moses knew the gospel. To be sure, Abraham, who came before Moses, also knew the gospel. 
Abraham had the gospel. Moses had the gospel. David had the gospel. These were all saved individuals. In fact, when you go back and read through Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the great faith chapter in the book of Hebrews, all of those faithful and faith-filled men and women in that chapter enjoyed some same similar features. Number one, they're all part of the chapter of faith. Thus, we tend to believe that they are all believers. We tend to interpret that part of our Bible as they are believers. But number two, they all lived prior to the cross event. They all lived in the time period of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament saints were not saved, quote-unquote, in a manner other than what we are saved in today. Jesus said it best, people. Listen to what he said. I'm paraphrasing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except by me. If I am to believe this um, uh, exclusive statement of Yeshua's, then all people who live lived after Jesus died and, and, and was uh, buried and resurrected and, and ascended, everyone who lived after that event, as well as everyone who lived prior to that, we're all saved the same way by placing our faith in this Messiah. There's only one Messiah that God would ever send into humanity. There's only one um, name that we can call upon for salvation. Moses may not have known the name of Jesus, but he knew this promise that God was revealing to him, and therefore he was able to lay hold of this um, this substitutionary uh, figure by faith. Abraham, the same thing as well. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. How is that possible? Well, it's because God opened their eyes by faith back then, the same way that God opens our faith, our eyes by faith today. It's just that we look back to the cross and they looked forward to the cross. But it's still the cross event. It's still the death of Jesus. It's still the Messiah, same Messiah. So within that context, this Messiah, the spirit of this Messiah, would come to dwell within these true believers in the in the Old Testament. So Moses had the spirit of Messiah in him. Abraham had the spirit of Messiah in him. Uh, Aaron, who I believe was also a believer, the, the brother of Moses, had the spirit of Messiah within him. J Joshua, the um, successor to Moses uh, that we're going to read about um, in our liturgy tonight, he had the spirit of Messiah within him. Well, how could that same spirit, Messiah live within all of those individuals simultaneously unless he he, he transcended in some way um, his own, well, at the time he wasn't human yet, right? There wasn't the human, humanity to compare it to. It was the, just this promise. So um, I say in my commentary, of course, I know this is all kind of philosophical uh, in this discussion, but Nevertheless, um, the truths are contained in the Bible, and we read this these concepts in the Bible, and we just kind of put philosophical terms on top of them. To be sure, I say, the Bible illustrates that the Old Testament saints, and I mentioned this earlier, who were genuinely saved, had to have had the Spirit of Messiah in them due to the fact that they were saved by placing their faith in the Messiah to come, whereas we are saved by placing our faith in the Messiah who has already come. So that's really uh, the, the, the crux of the matter. If you believe that, that the Old Testament saints were saved a different way by placing their generic faith in God, then 
I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you have misunderstood the words of the Master. You've misunderstood the Gospel. You've misunderstood the, the, the whole thrust of God sending His Son to planet Earth in the first place. If there was another way, then why would Israel need to place their faith in Jesus? Israel's been proclaiming faith in God for 3,500 years or longer, right? Why do we need to witness to unsaved Jews if they've already got genuine salvation via their quote-unquote faith in God? Understand what I'm saying here? If generic faith in God was all you needed, then Messiah didn't need to die. His death was pointless. He didn't have to, to, to um, lose his life because the Jewish people already had eternal life. But no, that's not the Jesus I read about in the Gospels. Over and over again, and I'm closing with this, when I read about the Messiah and his mission to the Jewish people, he over and over um, pointed them to himself. Right? If you, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He's even willing to offend them with his parables and his illustrations and his demonstrations of power and his healings and his, and his associations with Gentiles and sinners and prostitutes. He was willing to offend Jewish leaders to get them to understand that he was the exclusive truth that God the Father was sending into the world. He was the true light. He was the true bread come down from heaven. There was no other way for God to reconcile men to himself except through the Son of God. The sacrifice that Jesus would have to make. If there was another way, he even prayed to the Father, if it's possible to take this cup from me, Father, do it. But what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. There is no other way. Generic faith in God doesn't cut it. It's a great starting point. Don't get me wrong. I applaud the Jewish, the religious Jewish effort to seek God and to um, um, uh, turn yourself to God, to orient your, 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 your mind and your heart towards God's ways. But in the end, you've got to contend with this man, Jesus. And so I say in my um, uh, commentary in this closing paragraph, eternal salvation is, of course, exclusive to placing one's faith in in the Messiah, Yeshua. You can't be saved through your ethnicity. You can't be saved by your good works. You can't be saved by the family you're born into. It doesn't matter if you're born with a Christian mother and father, father and mother. That's good. That's a great place to start. And that's a good feature to have as a child. But it doesn't guarantee salvation. Being baptized as an infant. I'm sorry, that's not eternal salvation either. That's not the way that you are to, to come into the family of God uh, on a permanent basis. Um, conversion to Judaism, speaking of those in Paul's day, from Gentile to Jew. That's not eternal salvation. doesn't work that way. So I say in my commentary, uh, and this type of salvation, this exclusive um, uh, salvation through Yeshua, surely spans the difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Right? You have to recall, um, as you're studying the Bible, and I'm closing again, recall John 14, 6, and I alluded to this, where Jesus categorically states that he is, quote, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except 
through me. Those are the words of the master. I didn't make that up. That's not an extra insert uh, from the book of As Isaiah or the, the from the, the book of Second Hesitations or something like that. That's straight gospel, straight from John, straight from the Lord's mouth. I didn't make it up. If you have a problem with that exclusive aspect of the gospel, if it if it if it disrupts your your um, political perspective to teach that Jesus is the exclusive means of salvation and that all these other false messiahs and Buddhas and Krishnas and 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 uh, you know spiritual gurus and all that stuff, those guys aren't going to cut it. You know all the other Joseph Smiths and Muhammads out there. Those guys are false messiahs. If if that upsets your your uh, political apple cart, then I'm sorry. Jesus said it best, and Jesus is the only one who can say this because he is the only one who has this exclusive access to the Father, and he is the only one who can draw us to himself. I say in closing, his truth statement must be efficacious in both directions of what sci-fi buffs like myself would call the space-time continuum, right? If we were to overlay that particular sci-fi model on top of the Bible, um, Jesus' salvation cuts both ways uh, if we were talking about time travel. And that's going to do it for exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's read through the liturgy real quick uh, as I'm winding the study down. Um, I read uh, some Hebrew, some Greek. Last week, I think just, I just read Hebrew and Greek. Um, let me see if I can get through all of the Hebrew and Greek uh, tonight. I might even just skip the video and play it next week since we're running out of time. I'll just, I think I'll read the liturgy. We'll skip the video, and then we'll go uh, to closing right after the liturgy. This way I can read all of the liturgy. Deuteronomy 34 10 through 12, we picked up this particular passage of the Bible um, during our um, final celebration of Sukkot uh, just a few weeks back, uh, known as Rejoicing in the Law, Simchat Torah, Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day of celebration, where we take our Torah scrolls, we read the last few verses of the, um, of the Torah portion there, and then we immediately roll the scroll over, if we are able to do so, to the first few uh, verses in Genesis and read those right immediately following and create a seamless experience of reading the the, the Torah portions year year after year because we're we've cycled around again. We're already in Parashat uh, Lecha for this Sabbath day, which is um, Genesis chapter 12 that I was talking about. Uh, Abraham being told by God to get up and get out. That's what Lecha refers to. So we've already cycled the Torah reading all over again. We went from Genesis from Deuteronomy back over to Genesis. So let's simulate that here in our Torah portion in our. Uh, um, in our uh, uh, reading here. And I think I'll just read English, and the next week I'll read the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, or maybe I'll read all of it together. Uh, the English says in verse 30, verse 10 of chapter 34, And there is not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Verse 11, None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all and to all his servants and to all his land. And verse 12, And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Genesis 1.1 uh, 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's close in prayer. 
Abba, I bless your name. I'm so thankful that you sent your son to die for me, to take away my sins, to bring me into fellowship with you so that I can have this fellowship with the Spirit, so that I can know with a, a, a certainty, with a surety, that I stand right before you. I can sleep at night knowing that I'm forgiven and that I've been um, uh, re- made new, that the old man has been put to death and that the new man has been raised to life by the Spirit, just like Messiah died and was raised to life himself. I identify with Christ in that way. Lord, however, I need to put to death the deeds of the flesh by walking in the Spirit. I can't do it on my own. It's not within my power to to, to lead a sanctified life. It is a synergism, a partnership between your spirit and my own will, my own volition, my own spirit, yielding to the Spirit of God. Of course, the Word of God is also there to play an important part. It's the tool of the Holy Spirit utilized um, to help me come to this place where, as Paul describes it in uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, I put on this new mind. I, I renew myself by the washing of, of, of the water of the word pouring over my mind. Um, um, I renew my mind and uh, put off the old ways of thinking. Lord, in this way I can um, have fellowship with other believers and like-minded people, those who also have this genuine Holy Spirit who dwells within each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, for raising us up as believers, as communities, as families, strengthening us, protecting us from this evil pandemic, keeping us strong despite the fact that sometimes we get COVID and sometimes we don't. Bless you, Lord, for for all of your provisions, for your protection, for your uh, strengthening, and for giving us uh, promises that we know are sure and that will come to pass. We are going to keep our eyes focused on you and trusting in you, and in that way we will be strong and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the preeminence and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>